once again, dear listeners, and thank you for joining us here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host, and you are listening to Datum Line. Today's date, September 1, 2013. In our previous Datum Line broadcast entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 22, we continued with what has become a rather lengthy discourse on the pivotal and far-reaching legal tender debates of 1861 and the pertinent events surrounding legal tender United States notes issued upon the congressional decision in those debates to violate their constitutional oath on the grounds of wartime necessity. Congress would use the same rationale of necessity to justify circumventing the Constitution in our generation following a more recent national tragedy called 9-11, demonstrating the wisdom of Solomon, who, in Ecclesiastes 1.9, written about 3,000 years ago, assured us that history has a way of repeating itself. Today's message will conclude our review of these debates, as reported by our fourth and last commentator, Congressman James Blaine, in his 1,370-page magnum opus entitled, 20 Years of Congress, at Volume 1, published in 1884. Modern-day expositors of monetary reform continue to weave and repeat a mythology devoted to sustaining an almost childlike fascination for United States notes issued under President Lincoln, a fascination we encountered during our examination of the Truth in Money book by Theodore Thorin and Richard Warner, in Part 2 to Part 10 of our current series. These two authors were selected because they compiled so many banker-friendly myths to support a perspective familiar to America's current socialist mindset, the essence of which is nurtured in the mind-control factories of modern education. When authors advocate what their readers already believe, it makes for easy converts, to the socialist agenda. Thus, public education, as envisioned by Moses Mordecai Levy, became the primary tool of radical social reform and was inserted as the tenth plank of his Communist Manifesto, written under a more familiar alias, Karl Marx. But again, if what anti-Christian social engineers wish to impose upon society is what the public has already been taught to accept, then... To quote Mr. Levy's tenth plank, free education for all children in public schools, end quote, has served the elite's hidden agenda exceedingly well. So it is that many, if not most, of the outspoken critics of the Federal Reserve System already believe in its more evolutionary form, as also proposed by Mr. Levy in the fifth plank of his Communist Manifesto, quote, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. This, published in 1848, only 13 years prior to the legal tender debates of 1861. A major defect in today's Federal Reserve System, from a Marxist point of view, is that its 12 regional reserve banks are still privately owned. Consequently, populist Economic reformers demand that they be nationalized by Congress, who, we're told, is more righteous than private bankers when it comes to creating money out of nothing. 
Because this economic series began at part one by exposing a popular myth called the gold standard, it seemed only natural to follow that message by examining selected statements of monetary reformers who based their faulty arguments upon America's non-existent gold standard and its failure to prevent a train of bank panics culminating in the Great Depression of 1929. From that bank-orchestrated episode, we were allegedly rescued by FDR's New Deal, which included the confiscation of our gold in 1934. From a long list of spokesmen for the socialist cause, we first selected Thorne and Warner, whose Truth in Money book was published during the 1980s. We then touched upon billions for the bankers, debts for the people, first printed in 1967 by Pastor Sheldon Emery. Next on the list came Honest Money, the United States Note, by Dr. Charles Norberg, published in 1983. In Part 12 we began a brief examination of another book, No More National Debt, published in 2011 by Bill Still, who heaped even more praise upon legal tender greenbacks, as did attorney Ellen Brown, whose book, The Web of Debt, published in 2007 and revised in 2008, made the incredible claim that Lincoln greenbacks were money, not promises to pay it. All of these authors advocate legal tender notes, which they call money, with a fervor equal to their disdain for lawful money, gold and silver. There's an endless stream of socialist economic reformers who disregard the Constitution, the economic principles of Scripture, and accurate economic definitions. One of the more blatant oversights in populist lore is that all notes issued under Abraham Lincoln's administration bore a promise to pay, but most of them didn't state when or how. The kind of notes reformers now advocate are those which quietly began to replace correctly worded post-Civil War notes, only days after the Kennedy assassination in 1963, an emotionally charged event that provided a convenient distraction. Those replacement notes are what people now accept as money. And they're not even notes, failing to state who will pay what, to whom, or when. The ramifications attending our unbelievable economic ignorance is evidently unimportant to the Department of Education, however, when it comes to teaching a useful English vocabulary to the next generation of submissive drones. What's astonishing is that populists ascribe to their brand of man-made credit all the virtues inherent to gold and silver which they denigrate at every opportunity. Such is their lack of appreciation for God's handiwork. On the other hand, they bestow upon instruments of legalized theft the noble appellations of constitutional, interest-free, debt-free, honest money. If they understood English and constitutional history, they'd realize that greenbacks are none of the above, as we've explained in our broadcast. Regular listeners should easily detect the absurdities inherent to populist mythology. For example, while gold and silver are expressly authorized by the Constitution and are given prominence in the Scriptures, bills of credit are expressly prohibited to the states by the Constitution and then denied to Congress on a vote of 9 to 2 at the Philadelphia Convention. Furthermore, credit instruments can only be sustained by faith and trust in sinful man 
who develops and operates a system of legalized confiscation, contrary to biblical precepts. While gold and silver coins were issued from the United States Treasury interest-free, credit imposes an interest burden, along with the added cost of inflation, which is a hidden tax imposed by and profitable to Congress. Check out the populist economic reform proposals, and you'll see that they invariably include the lending of intangible credit by Congress to states and other government subdivisions, to commercial enterprises and individuals at interest. Only Congress will be allowed to steal from everybody else without charging themselves interest. Pursuant to the original Coinage Act of 1792, gold and silver coins were issued debt-free from the United States Treasury, while United States notes are, by definition, evidences of debt, a sum of money due or owing. That's why every note issued by the Lincoln administration bore a promise to pay later, simply deleting the promise from the note, as did the Federal Reserve in 1963, and which populists proposed to do with their notes, does not alter the fact that the first party to spend them, such as Uncle Sam, will get those notes at no cost so as to steal the goods and services of a public brainwashed by academia into believing they were actually paid. This is Datum Line. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. Today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 23. Well, as I mentioned on the front side of this uh, first break, uh, today's message is going to end our rather lengthy discussion and discourse on the subject of the legal tender debates. These are from our last and our fourth commentator, Mr. James G. Blaine, who was in Congress during uh, the 1860s and wrote uh, what I have here is the 20 Years of Congress, Volume 1, and we're going to turn to page 411 uh, of Volume 1, where Mr. Blaine states, quote, It had been demonstrated that Treasury notes, without punctual and regular redemption, would not circulate, end quote. Did you catch that? Now, some of our listeners might find this statement hard to believe, having accepted non-redeemable legal tender script without a whimper since 1963, when dishonored Federal Reserve notes and dishonored United States notes were first introduced immediately following the JFK assassination. But it was well understood during the 1800s, at least, that IOUs of the United States Treasury had to be universally and promptly paid in gold or silver coin when presented for redemption, or else the public would refuse to accept any more of them. Here's why that was so, according to Mr. Blaine. Quote, when A paid them to B in satisfaction of a debt, B had no assurance that he might in turn cancel an obligation by paying them to C. Why not? Well, it would perhaps occur to see that for a lawful debt, 
he had the right to demand gold or silver. For the law told him in explicit terms that nothing else constituted a legal tender. End quote. Well, what law was Mr. Blaine talking about? The one that Congress would violate by declaring United States notes a legal tender that Bohr promised to pay, but even without stating when or in what. Blaine then waxed pragmatic on behalf of an unlawful fix to a problem that was rooted in bank fraud, saying, quote, It was obviously impossible to conduct the business of the country and to carry on the war in coin payments with the small amount of coin at command. I'm going to stop right there. Now, there's a reason why there was so little coin. And as I pointed out in previous broadcasts, that reason is because we had embraced bank credit and banks had sequestered much of the public's gold in their vaults. He went on. Few would insist upon coin, but as the power to insist upon it was a legal right, it was a continuing menace to the confidence of trade, end quote. So here was a federal representative calling your legal right under the Constitution to demand lawful money. He was calling that a menace to the confidence of trade, more and more of which was being carried on with bank credit. In point of fact, gold and silver coin provided the only test of bank solvency, meaning whether there was bank fraud. From a purely social engineering standpoint, America had to either repent of a covetous lifestyle fueled by bank credit or else surrender her gold and silver to the perpetrators of fraud. When that choice finally confronted Congress, between rights protected at law under the Constitution versus public confidence in banking, a Congress bound by oath to the former voted for the latter. Blaine's rationale expressed on behalf of the congressional majority now brings us full circle to his opening remarks in our previous Datum Line broadcast, wherein he said, quote, In the opinion of the majority, the one imperative duty was that the government should take control of the currency, issue its own paper as a circulating medium, and make it equal and alike to all by declaring it to be a legal tender in the payment of debts. It was the most momentous financial step ever taken by Congress, as it is the one concerning which the most pronounced and even exasperating difference of opinion was manifested at the time, has since continued, and will probably never entirely subside so long as the government keeps one legal tender note in circulation. End quote. Now here's the clincher. Quote, it was admitted to be a doubtful, if not dangerous, exercise of power. But the law of necessity overrides all other laws and asserts its right to govern. End quote. Well, again, another event called 9-11 served to justify a war in the Middle East, a new Department of Homeland Security, and a Patriot Act that Congress never read. 
but which further abrogated our constitutional protections, all under the guise of necessity. But now, if you served in Congress, on which side would you have cast a vote? For the economic commandments of God as protected under the Constitution? Or for the law of necessity by compelling public confidence in an economic system that provides instant gratification and the good life, all stimulated by bank credit? The Confederacy was confronted by the same set of choices, either to pay for wartime necessities up front in gold, silver, copper, or some other kind of wealth, or else they could defer payment by waging war on the installment plan with bills of credit. Like the Union, the Union North, they decided upon credit. Currency notes issued by the Confederate States, however, use slightly different wording such as a $50 note from 1864, which read as follows, quote, Two years after the ratification of a treaty of peace between the Confederate States and the United States, the Confederate States of America will pay to the bearer $50, end quote, from a $50 note. That, at least, was more definitive than Lincoln's legal tender IOUs, which never said when, they would be redeemed. By their statement, Confederate notes would be redeemed two years after the Confederate states emerged victorious as an independent country. Having lost the war, however, those notes immediately became worthless since the government upon which public faith was posited had come to an abrupt end. So too the notes of Germany under its vanishing governments like the Weimar Republic and later the Third Reich, or the Assignats of late 18th century France, which became worthless with the collapse of its issuing government, or those beautiful notes issued by the government of Biafra when that African political economy collapsed a few decades ago. For those who need historical proof as to the fate of credit systems, the examples are endless. But the gold coins of ancient Rome suffer no such loss of value or respect among the wise and prudent investors of today. Now, getting back to the Civil War period on page 411, you may recall that it was Mr. Spaulding of New York who reported the legal tender bill to the House of Representatives. And on page 412, that according to Mr. Blaine, quote, he had not waited for advice or even for consultation. But on the 30th day of December 1861, the day on which the banks of New York suspended specie payment, he introduced the legal tender bill in the House of Representatives. What a coincidence. Here's our music. This is our next break. You're listening to Datum Line, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 23. And I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org. Oh, welcome back to this segment of Datum Line. 
on the other side of this break I had mentioned, uh, quoting from uh, James Blaine's book, 20 Years of Congress, published in 1884, that it was uh, Congressman Spaulding of New York who had introduced the original legal tender bill in the House of Representatives on the very day in which banks of New York suspended specie payment. Now, that was quite a coincidence, wasn't it? And to think that this banker from Buffalo, that's right, Mr. Spaulding was a banker from Buffalo, who turned lawmaker, was gifted with such foresight, having been, we learned, quote, all his life engaged in financial affairs, end quote. This from page 411 of Mr. Blaine's book. Said Spaulding of his own legal tender bill, <clears throat> he said it was, quote, a war measure, a measure of necessity, not of choice, end quote. I guess we're going to emphasize necessity in today's message. He admitted that, quote, a suspension of specie payment is greatly to be deplored, end quote. But he went on to contend that, quote, it is not a fatal step in an emergency or an exigency, as he called it, like the present, end quote. I don't think David Rockefeller could have said it any better. You see, bankers like Spaulding were impeded and are impeded, or at least they were back in those days, in the creation of unlimited credit by having it anchored back in those days half-heartedly to gold and silver. A 25% 25 coin reserve, for example, uh, is hardly a dependable anchor when the economic winds begin to blow. But now listen to his reasoning in support of confiscating what Congress wants to use by way of legal tender. He says, quote, Gold is not as valuable as the productions of the farmer and the mechanic, for it is not as indispensable as our food and raiment. Hmm. Our army and navy must have what is far more valuable to them than gold and silver. They must have food, clothing, and the material of war. Treasury notes issued by the government on the faith of the whole people will purchase the indispensable articles. End quote. Well, an evidence of debt, like a treasury note, never purchased anything, which a victim of counterfeit notes and check fraud should be able to understand. Now, if a law could be gotten to compel public acceptance of bad checks and counterfeit notes as well, the fraud attending these evidences of debt would also be difficult for the public to detect. It's the fact that you can legally force legal tender notes upon the next sucker that makes it hard for people to understand how this game is played and why Uncle Sam and the Federal Reserve System of today are such tremendously big winners. On page 413, Blaine says, quote, Mr. Pendleton of Ohio was the first in opposition. In beginning a long argument, he insisted that, quote, the feature of this bill, which first strikes every thinking man, even in these days of novelties, <clears throat> is the proposition that these notes shall be made a legal tender in discharge of all pecuniary obligations, as well those which have accrued in virtue of contracts already made as those which are yet to accrue in pursuance of contracts which shall hereafter be made. Do gentlemen appreciate the full import and meaning of that clause? 
do they realize the full extent to which it will carry them? Every contract for the payment of money is in legal contemplation a contract for the payment of gold and silver coin. Every promissory note, every bill of exchange, every lease reserving rent, every loan of money reserving interest, every bond issued by this government is a contract to which the faith of the obligor is pledged that the amount, whether rent, interest, or principal, shall be paid in the gold and silver coin of the country. End quote. <clears throat> Mr. Pendleton deemed it a very serious matter that, quote, <clears throat> the provisions of this bill contemplate impairing the obligations of every contract of that kind and disturbing the basis upon which every judgment and decree and verdict has been entered. End quote. He concluded by referring to the depreciated paper of the French Revolution, to the long suspension of specie currency in England, and the throes attending return to it in 1822, quoting Daniel Webster's words that, quote, gold and silver currency is the law of the land at home, the law of the world abroad. There can, in the present condition of the world, be no other currency, end quote. <clears throat> well, that basis was all overturned. That's why this is such an important period of time. That's why I'm spending so much time on the legal tender debates. This was a pivotal event <clears throat> in economic history, and this is what has brought us to where we are today. Numerous legal disputes arose following the Civil War, in which the obligation of contract clause at Article 1, Section 10, Paragraph 1 of the Constitution was argued because of debts incurred for gold and silver, which were being answered by the offer of greatly depreciated legal tender notes. Several of these cases went to the United States Supreme Court for final adjudication. One grievous misfortune of that war was how Congress helped to turn America from its constitutionally protected free enterprise system of lawful money to what has evolved into a socialist, centrally planned, centrally regulated credit system that is irresistibly drawing this nation under the yoke of tyranny, run by a global banking cartel. <clears throat> Turning to page 414, Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, in a letter to the Committee of Ways and Means, dated 29 January 1861, explained why Congress should compel the public, via legal tender, to accept United States notes as proposed by Mr. Spaulding. Quote, Making them a legal tender, he said, might, however, still be avoided. See, he began on a somewhat conservative note. If the willingness manifested by the people generally, by railroad companies and by many of the banking institutions, to receive and pay them as money in all transactions were absolutely or practically universal. But, now he identifies the fly in the ointment, but, unfortunately, there are some persons and some institutions that refuse to receive and pay them. Their action tends not merely to the unnecessary depreciation of the notes, but to establish discriminations in business against those who, in this matter, give a cordial support to the government and in favor of those who do not. Sounds a little bit like Donald Rumsfeld, doesn't he, talking about how this has such a corrosive effect upon things. Okay. Anyway, he goes on. Such discrimination should, if possible, be prevented. 
and the provision making the notes a legal tender prevents it by putting all citizens in this respect on the same level, both of rights and duties, end quote. Now, if we omit the Rumsfeldian rhetoric and cut to the chase, if you'll forgive the pun, what Secretary Chase was saying is that free people should not be allowed to refuse unconstitutional bills of credit under any circumstance, and that their lawful protection in this regard must be denied as a matter of wartime necessity and federal preeminence. This interpretation was confirmed earlier by Mr. Blaine, who said that the law, and that was the Constitution, which protected a man's right to demand lawful money in exchange for his labor, was viewed by the congressional majority as a menace to the confidence of trade. Why should a man be paid when he can be legally robbed and then permitted to steal a like amount from his neighbor? And Congressman Spaulding, a former New York banker from Buffalo, had a plan to accomplish this. Congress needed to trade in the marketplace, but without having to pay for what it wanted. They would steal the people's wealth with IOUs issued in violation of the Constitution and of dubious fatality. Their justification posited on a new premise that had been universally denied by the courts since the founding of our Constitutional Republic, the presumption of federal preeminence or sovereignty in domestic or internal affairs. This subject was covered in Part 10 and Part 11 of our current series. Congressman Blaine continued, page 414 and 415, saying that Thaddeus Stevens threw the whole weight of his influence in favor of the measure. Now, this was no surprise, since party politics played a prominent role. Mr. Stevens and Mr. Blaine had a few things in common. Both were from Pennsylvania, but Blaine moved to the state of Maine. Both helped organize the Republican Party in their respective states. Here's our music, I hear. Guess we got another break. We'll come back to this on the other side of this break. You're listening to Datum Line. This is Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 23. segment of Datum Line, as I had mentioned on the front side of this last break, <clears throat> Blaine and uh, Thaddeus Stevens shared some things in common. Both of them had helped organize the Republican Party in their respective states, I think was the last statement I made. And you remember that it was President Lincoln, who was also a Republican, and the United States Supreme Court that overturned almost a century of judicial interpretation regarding bills of credit and federal sovereignty in defense of the Lincoln administration, was decided in a case called Juliet versus Greenman in 1884 on a vote of eight Republican judges to one Democrat, Justice Field, dissenting as the only champion of the Constitution. Turning to page 415 in Blaine's book, he says that two prominent amendments of Mr. Spaulding's bill were submitted, <clears throat> one by Mr. Volandigan of Ohio, 
who objected to the legal tender provision and its failure to provide for redemption in coin. To this, Mr. Stevens, answering with typical sarcasm, said, quote, He, Mr. Volandigan, fears our notes, now with legal tender character, would depreciate. <clears throat> Let him who is sharp enough instruct the house how notes that every man must take can be less valuable than the same notes that no man need take, and, he now admits, few would, since they are irredeemable on demand, end quote. As to their constitutionality, his arrogant reply was that whoever, quote, admits our power to emit bills of credit, nowhere expressly authorized by the Constitution, is an unreasonable doubter when he denies the power to make them a legal tender, end quote. Well, he was right about that. To admit one unlawful act would open the door of acquiescence to yet another, which were the exact sentiments, turning now to page 417, of Mr. Thomas from Massachusetts and Mr. Conkling of New York in opposition to the bill. Mr. Conkling stated, quote, In passing this bill, <clears throat> as was said by the gentleman from Massachusetts, that was Mr. Thomas, we are to realize the French proposition about virtue, that it is the first step that costs. Another and another and another $100 million of this issue will follow. We are plunging into an abyss from which there is to be no resuscitation and no resurrection, end quote. Should any of our listeners doubt the wisdom of this observation, let them plot the growth of our national debt on a graph that looks more like a ski slope from 1861 to present day, and then try to deny what has become a prophecy fulfilled in the letter. <clears throat> Turning to page 418, Mr. Morrill of Vermont thought that as a war measure, the legal tender bill, quote, was not waged against the enemy, but might well make him grin with delight, end quote. He would as soon provide, quote, Chinese wooden guns for the army as paper money alone for the treasury, end quote, declaring that there never was a greater fallacy than to pretend that notes made a legal tender would pass at par. This prophetic utterance began to manifest immediately and is obvious today, where a $20 Federal Reserve note will not trade at par with a $20 gold coin, which is approximately one ounce of pure gold, despite the legal tender sanction of Congress. Where on earth can a raw number created out of nothing and called $20 be accorded the same status as a $20 weight of gold, first created by God and then brought to the marketplace by the labors of man? In two venues only do we find this absurdity consistently upheld, in government and in banking. Turning to page 419, quote, Mr. Sheffield of Rhode Island argued earnestly against the bill and predicted the same fate for it, if enacted, that overcame a similar attempt in his state during the Revolutionary War, quote, to make paper a legal tender, end quote. The people would not submit to it, and the court set it aside as an unlawful exercise of power, said Mr. Sheffield. This prediction did not come true, however, and history was not repeated, but why not? It was likely due to America's greater willingness to enjoy the good life of instant gratification provided by bank credit at a time when new and exciting inventions followed rapidly upon the heels of scientific discoveries and rationalism was replacing the biblical prohibitions against the banker's holy trinity of debt, credit, and usury. A new romance had begun, and debtors infatuated with bank credit 
We're now compelled to earn, return, and therefore esteem those imaginary dollars as part of an insidious values clarification debt trap. From now on, gold and silver were no more valuable than dollars of intangible credit. The banker said so. And the throne of iniquity spoken of in Psalm 9420 declared it was so by federal law. Turning to page 420, quote, Mr. John B. Alley supported the bill, legal tender, that is, saying the choice was between notes of the government and an irredeemable bank, bank, irredeemable bank currency, <clears throat> a great deal of which will be found, as it was after the War of 1812, utterly worthless. What Mr. Alley failed to mention, of course, was that the notes he supported would also become worthless, like those of the Confederacy, if the Union North should lose the war. As for bank currency, Mr. Alley was correct. They became worthless when the truth of insufficient specie finally triumphed victorious over the fraud perpetrated by issuing unbanked notes. The only choice, according to Mr. Alley, was between bank credit and federal credit, both of which are now proven to be totally worthless. Maybe it's not so much about who gets to steal legally, but rather whoever has that monopoly on theft is a thief. Turning to page 421, in the Senate Finance Committee, Mr. Fessenden of Maine was troubled by the legal tender provisions of the bill and asked, quote, Will your legal tender clause make your notes any better? Do you imagine that because you force people to take these notes, they are to be worth the money, and that no injury is to follow? Boy, what is the consequence, he says. Does not property rise? No, it was the price of property. You say you're injuring the soldier if you compel him to take a note without its being a legal tender. But will not the sutler, he's a merchant who follows the army, you know, selling food, cigarettes, liquor, and all that sort of stuff to soldiers, will not the sutler put as much more on his goods? He'll add to the price. And if the soldier sends the notes to his wife to be passed at a country store for necessities for his family, what will be the result? The goods that are sold are purchased in New York. The price is put on in New York. A profit is added in the country, and thus the soldier loses just as much. You are not saving anything for anybody, end quote. Mr. Fessenden would support notes, however, that paid interest to the bearer who freely received them, these not being a legal tender. Regarding such notes, he asked, Will notes of this kind stand better when going out if you put the confession upon their face that they are discarded by you and that you know they ought not to be received and would not be? unless their reception is compelled by legal enactment? End quote. I've stressed this aspect of legal tender to help our listeners understand that the Federal Reserve notes you now take freely, if not eagerly, also carry the impress of legal tender, meaning you can be forced to take them under penalty of law if you fail to exercise adequate precautions in refusing them. It never occurs to the general public that anyone in his right constitutional Bible-believing mind would even refuse to accept instruments of theft issued by the federal government. We've been under the ether from birth, and pure fresh air is a foreign substance to most Americans. I'm going to close with Mr. Colomer of Vermont, page 423, who followed Mr. Fessenden in an exhaustive argument against the bill as a violation of the Constitution. He believed in the power of the government to sustain itself in the strife, the war, physically and pecuniarily. 
He was not willing to say to a man, here is my note, if I do not pay it, you must steal the amount from the first man you come to and give him this note in payment. Unlike Mr. Fessenden, he would not be governed in this matter by necessity. He had taken an oath to support the Constitution, and he believed this bill violated it. He would not overthrow the Constitution in the Senate chamber while the rebels are endeavoring to overthrow it by war. I think it's a fitting malediction to the legal tender notes, the statement made by Mr. Colomer of Vermont. He had taken an oath. You may not think the Constitution is an important document. Well, God bless you. But he took an oath to obey it, and he was going to keep his word. That's what it boiled down to. This is the end of another segment of Datum Line. I hope this has been of interest to you. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, bidding you good day. smell some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story, it's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday. Bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? <laughs> Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday, or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive the stock market tanks? Well, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades' experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge. And I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett, at 602-799-8214. Or by email at KettleMoraineLTD at Cox.net for private consultation. Once again, our phone number 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? 
For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. That's rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pastures meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. But I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, in 
trying so many different coffees that were so good. And uh, every time I came back uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee. So I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumer's house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off Drop and Lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off Drop and Lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to easeoff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F dot com. And hurry, because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. Easeoff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. Easeoff, LLC, 417-932-6419. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? 
You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be, and it really works. Take Extendivite for six months, and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung Kay, and I am currently the lead Shiloji hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shiloji Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shiloji as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shiloji by other names. Shilojit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shiloji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shiloji has been used for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. Kilad Atzman says the essence of Jewish power is the ability to prevent the discussion of Jewish power. Jewish power requires anybody in politics to understand it and know about it, but never talk about it. My awakening really sums up with the very best evidence, the facts and the truth about race, and the fact that race drives history, and the truth about the Jewish question. The younger you get, the greater the percentage of people who identify as alphabet soup, you know, LGBTQ, RS. This woman, she's like, oh yeah, I identify as a koala two years ago. And I'm like, what? A koala? What? Maybe if it was quickie koala, that might be cool, but otherwise, you know. How about an inward pass? Have you ever received an inward pass from any of your black friends? Biden invited a drag queen to come for the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. It's an Respect for Anal Sex Act. So, you know, I mean, let's, let's, let's just call it like it is. The Patrick and Jeremy Show, Tuesday at 9 Central and Wednesday at 1 Central. Consider this. Dead people see only what they want to see. And frankly, most of us are still dead. 
Let me give you the lessons of gold and five easy lessons. Number one, don't buy it because you need to make money. You buy gold because you need to protect the money you already have. Don't ever look at the price as a barrier. Look at it as an incentive. Number three, don't buy its paper pretenders. We talked about that a lot. Buy gold. Buy the real thing in the form of coins and bullion. Fourth, don't fall prey to glitzy television or Facebook ads. Do your due diligence instead. And that's what I try to provide you with and have for 26 and a half years on the air and 30 years in this profession. Fifth, don't allow naysayers to divert your interest. Allow yourself the right to protect your interests as you see fit. Jeff Bennett here. And one of the ways you can do that is to contact Kettle Moraine Limited. Contact me by calling or texting me at 602-799-8214. 602-799-8214. You can also email me at kettlemoraineltd at cox.net. Let me help you protect your wealth and your family today. Once again, call or text us at 602-799-8214 or visit our website, sierramadrepreciousmetals.com. Be glad to help you out. Be glad to answer your questions. That's what we're here for. No pressure. Just good, hard, common sense. The decision then becomes up to you. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pastures meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended.